On this episode of the Blue Jacketeer podcast, we'll be covering chapter 23 of the Corman Manual. Welcome to the Blue Jacketeer podcast, where we help you prepare for the Navy-wide advancement exam by covering study material created by highly qualified sailors. Learn more about what we have to offer at www.bluejacketeer.com. Welcome back to the bluejacketeer.com podcast for Hospital Corman. I'm Taylor Larson, and I'll be walking you through this chapter of the Corman Manual. Here at Blue Jacketeer, we aim to bring you the tools you need to be successful on the Navy-wide advancement exam. On this episode, we'll continue with the Hospital Corman Manual covering Chapter 23. Be sure to pay attention because on the next episode, you'll be quizzed on what you learned today. Without further delay, let's get started. Sit back, relax, and listen up. This is Chapter 23 of the Hospital Corman Manual, Medical Aspects of Chemical, Biological, and Radiological Warfare. The topic of this chapter is something that no one likes to think about, but everyone should be prepared for. I don't mean prepared as in store years of canned food in your basement, but be prepared as in how to best help the victims of a chemical, biological, or radiological, known as CBR, attack. The history of chemical warfare agents is a long, involved one. They were first used over 100 years ago, when in 1915 the Germans released chlorine gas against the Allies in Belgium. Over 5,000 casualties were the result of this attack. Since that first use, these agents have become more intricate, targetable, and effective, with new methods to release them to an unsuspecting population. A chart on page 23-2 lists the symbols, common names, and classes of some chemical weapons. The test loves to pull information in tables as test questions, so make sure you take a look at that table and add it to your studies. Of course, with such a diverse array of possible weapons, each having their own classifications and effects on the body, early and accurate detection are key. All medical personnel should be familiar with three of the most common detection methods available. The first is the M9 chemical agent detector paper. It is the most widely used method of detecting liquid chemical warfare agents. M9 paper indicates the presence of a nerve agent or a blister agent by turning a pink, red, reddish brown, purple color. It does not identify which agent gives the positive reading. The M9 paper is self-adhesive and attaches to most surfaces. The second method is the M8 chemical agent detector paper. This is used to test for the presence of liquid chemical agents. Unlike the M9 paper, the M8 paper can detect the presence of particular agents. When the paper touches a liquid agent, the paper will change color, either gold yellow for G-class nerve agents or olive or veranda green for VX. The paper turns red or purple when it comes in contact with blister agents. The M256A1 Chemical Agent Detector Kit is a portable kit that detects nerve gas, mustard gas, and cyanide. The kit contains a package of M8 paper, detailed instructions, and a vapor sampler for detecting chemical agent vapors. HM survival is essential and should be the first priority in a chemical attack, so let's discuss PPE for a bit. PPE for a CBR attack consists of the JS list, or Joint Service Lightweight Integrated Suit Technology, the field MTAC-40 mask with hook, a pair of protective gloves, and a pair of protective boots. 
Which pieces of this gear are available, carried, or worn will depend on the mop or mission-oriented protective posture level of the command. There are five mop levels, and there's another handy chart on page 23, tack 4, that details what gear applies to what mop level. Even in elevated mop levels, it's important to know how to remove an agent from contaminated skin. The effects on the skin can be reduced by washing, blotting, or wiping the contaminants away. A chemical agent on the skin can be removed using the M291 Skin Decontamination Kit. If you're able to decontaminate the skin within the first minute of contamination, it's estimated to be 10 times more effective than if decontamination were delayed by as little as 5 minutes. Now that we've touched on detection, protection, and decontamination, let's go over nerve agents, which are the most concerning of all the chemical agents. Nerve agents are cholinesterase inhibitors, which means they mess with the normal transmission of nerve impulses in the nervous system. Nerve agents are odorless, nearly colorless liquid or vapors that can vary in how viscous or volatile they are. Nerve agents can enter the body through the eyes, respiratory tract, and skin. Symptoms can show in mere seconds or as long as 18 hours. Symptoms of a vapor or a liquid can be separated by how much the patient was exposed to. For a vapor nerve agent, a small exposure level will show as meiosis, constricted pupils, rhinorrhea, runny nose, and mild difficulty breathing. A large exposure level will show as meiosis, convulsions, apnea, no breathing, flaccid paralysis, and nasal mouth and lung secretions. For a liquid nerve agent, small or moderate exposure will yield localized swelling, nausea, vomiting, and weakness. A large exposure to a liquid nerve agent will show as a sudden loss of consciousness, convulsions, apnea, flaccid paralysis, and secretions from the nose, mouth, and lungs. Treatment of a nerve agent needs to be immediate. This is the difference between life or death, and the real reason you're learning this chapter. Atropine is an acetylcholine blocker, and the drug of choice for treating nerve agent poisoning. The second drug used for nerve agent poisoning is pralidoxum chloride, commonly referred to as 2-PAM chloride. 2-PAM chloride removes the nerve agent from the acetylcholinesterase enzyme. If you have to treat convulsions after giving treatment for the actual agent, you can administer convulsive antidote nerve agent, CANA, or a diazepam 10 mg autoinjector. The Mark I antidote kit contains two autoinjectors, covering the atropine and 2-PAM chloride injections. Blister agents, or vesicants, primarily affect the skin, as you might imagine. These agents are classified as non-lethal, but large doses can in fact cause death. Mustard agents are considered to be both a liquid and a vapor threat. Mustard agents are also a major concern because of the large stockpiles that exist and how easy it is to make. Signs and symptoms of mustard agents won't manifest for several hours after exposure. Blister agents attack the eyes, respiratory tract, and the skin. Victims might remember seeing an oily substance and smelling garlic, mustard, or horseradish. The first noticeable symptoms will be pain in the eyes, with a spastic blinking and light sensitivity. Mustard blister agents cause blistering in about 12 hours, but can even linger for as long as 48 hours. 
pulmonary agents attack the membranes in the lungs, causing plasma from the bloodstream to leak into the alveoli and fill the lungs with fluid. Pulmonary agents include phosgene, chlorine, and hexachloroethane smoke and ammonia. Pulmonary agents will typically be in vapor form and travel close to the ground. Chlorine and ammonia have really distinct smells that you're likely already familiar with, and phosgene is a colorless gas that smells like new-mown hay or fresh-cut grass. Symptoms will eventually show as irritation of the eyes, nose, and airway, but may not show for two to six hours after exposure. Later symptoms include rapid, shallow breathing, clammy skin, a feeble pulse, and low blood pressure. Moving on from chemical agents, the next topic is biological agents. There are three types of biological warfare agents, bacteria, viruses, and toxins. Bacteria are, of course, living cells that carry many complex metabolic functions and can cause disease in humans by invading host tissues or producing toxins. A lot of bacteria even use both methods, making them particularly nasty. Some bacteria that can be weaponized are anthrax, the plague, and tularemia. Viruses are parasites within the cell that use living cells to multiply, since they don't have their own system for metabolism. Viruses can use humans, plants, animals, and bacteria to infect host cells. Some examples of viruses are smallpox and hemorrhagic fevers. Toxins are harmful substances produced by a variety of living organisms. Biological toxins are generally more toxic than chemical agents and make up some of the most toxic substances on the planet. Some biological examples of toxins are ricin and botulinum toxin. Some things to look for to know if a biological agent has been released are an unusual disease for the area, high morbidity and mortality compared with a normal occurrence of the disease, and the absence of a natural vector. Our first biological agent is anthrax. This is a gram-positive, remember the lab chapter? What color would that stain? Encapsulated, spore-forming, non-motile rod. That was a lot. Anthrax forms spores that are usually how the bacteria infects its victims. The spores can survive for years or even decades, just waiting patiently for the next host. Anthrax incubates for 1 to 7 days, but can incubate for as long as 60 days. Antibiotics are the primary treatment for anthrax, with supportive and adjunctive care available as patients need it. The first-line drugs for anthrax are ciprofloxacin and doxycycline, with 400 mg of IV cipro being given every 12 hours, and 100 mg of oral or IV doxy given every 12 hours. Plague is found in rodents and their fleas, and is easily destroyed by simple sunlight or drying. Plague, like anthrax, can be incubated for 1-7 to seven days, but can take longer if you've received the vaccine. Plague pneumonia can take a shorter 1-4 to four days to incubate. Bubonic plague is known by its characteristic swollen and painful lymph nodes called buboes, high fever, chills, headache, and malaise. A bubo is normally 1 to 10 centimeters in diameter and will be swollen, painful, and warm to the touch. These usually form in the groin but can also appear in the armpit or neck. 
Treatment for the plague should be started immediately if it's even suspected. The primary antibiotics to treat the plague with are streptomycin, 1 gram given every 12 hours through IV, and gentamicin with 5 milligrams per kilogram given IV or IM every day. The last bioagent that we'll cover on the podcast is ricin, and then we can move on to rad agents. Ricin is a potent toxin that can be made into a WMD. Ricin is made from the waste material left over from processing castor beans. Ricin can be inhaled, ingested, and injected. Symptoms will begin a few hours after ingestion and 18 to 24 hours after inhalation. Time to death after a lethal dose is mere days. The truly terrifying aspect of ricin is that there is no known antidote or specific treatment. You can only give supportive care for the gastroenteritis and cardiac and respiratory systems as needed. Alright, now on to radiological warfare. Fortunately, with the exception of the ionizing radiation aspect of things, treatment for these patients is pretty similar to how we would normally care for a patient in conventional warfare. There are a few types of radiation to discuss, but first we need to cover direct and indirect action. Direct action is when the radiation directly hits a sensitive atom or molecule in the cell, and the damage from this is irreparable. The cell will either just die outright or not be able to perform properly. Indirect action is when the radiation interacts with water molecules in the body. The energy in the water makes unstable, toxic hyperoxide molecules. Alpha particles are heavy, short-range particles that can't penetrate clothing or skin. However, alpha-emitting materials are obviously harmful if inhaled, swallowed, or brought into the body through open wounds. There will be significant cellular damage in the immediate area around the particle's physical location. Beta particles are light, short-ranged, and usually an ejected electron. This radiation can travel several feet in the air and is moderately penetrating. Beta radiation can penetrate human skin to the germinal layer, where new skin cells are produced. If high levels of beta-emitting contaminants stay on the skin, they can cause injury to the skin and can cause serious internal damage if absorbed into the body. Gamma and x-rays are different types of radiation, but have the same effect biologically. These are highly penetrating and can travel several inches through human tissue, penetrate most materials, and are mainly an external hazard to us humans. Dense materials are needed to protect from gamma radiation. Time, distance, and shielding are the three major factors that assist in avoiding exposure. Time is best thought of in the condition of a post-nuclear blast. If you go in five minutes later, you're going to have a bad time. But if you wait a few years, you might not need a hazmat suit. Distance is easy enough to figure out, but shielding is the most important to discuss, since it usually comes up on the test. Lead is the most effective shielding material as it's extremely dense. There's your test question. On to signs and symptoms. The symptoms of the first or prodromal phase are typically nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and malaise. These will start within minutes to days after the exposure, and may even come and go for the next few days. The second phase is called the latent phase, when these symptoms come and go. The third phase, or manifested illness, includes symptoms like convulsions, tumors, lethargy, severe diarrhea, and fever. An extremely important bit to remember, radiological decontamination should never interfere with medical care. 
radioactive particles will not cause acute injuries to medical staff, and decontamination procedures used to remove chemical agents are more than sufficient for radiological contaminations. This concludes our lesson for Chapter 23 of the Hospital Corman Manual. I hope that you are not only able to learn something, but also apply some of the information in this chapter to your daily duties. Remember, at Blue Jackets here, we bring you the very best in advancement exam preparation. Don't forget to listen to the audio quiz for this lesson and get your best studying done with our expert study tools at www.bluejacketeer.com. Also, make sure to look for our next lesson where we'll be covering chapter 24 of the Hospital Corpsman Manual. As always, I'm Taylor Larson reminding you to stay Navy and always keep working for that next rank. Thank you.